Welcome, distinguished happy warrior. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. And happy warrior, yes, you probably already know why I call you happy warriors and why I think of you and me as a happy warrior. But uh, there's actually something else too. And it's something we've not spoken about before, but I thought you should be aware of it. And that is the natural default of human beings is to be pessimistic, cowardly, and miserable. It really is. Uh, you Think about how a baby is born. A baby comes into the world miserable <laughs> for good reason. Uh, you know, out of a comfortable place into this harsh world of bright lights and uh, doctors patting tushes and all kinds of things going on. But um, the baby's not naturally happy. And little by little, we try and make the baby happy, first of all, by manipulating the environment, keeping the baby warm and dry and well-fed. But as time goes by, wise parents educate a baby to be happy, to make itself happy. But the natural condition is miserable, whiny, complaining, grumbly. And the important thing to understand is that just like other defaults, right, we default towards the selfish, we default towards the lazy. And if you were fortunate enough to have wise and diligent parents, why then they helped move the laziness out of you. They, they gave you the ability to generate willpower and, uh, and self-discipline. And, um, and they, little by little, helped train you. And then when you became of sentient age, you yourself realized how important it is to not surrender to the natural default of laziness and how important it is not to surrender to the, the natural default of, of greediness. And in exactly the same way, we learn not to default to the natural condition of whiny, grumbly, and complainy. Uh, being happy is a decision, as, as I've often mentioned on the show. and uh, It has nothing to do with the environment. Things can be tough, and you can feel happy, troubled, concerned, uh, stressed, but still happy. As a matter of fact, I actually once met somebody who finally, after many years of struggle, made it and uh, achieved the dreams of financial affluence. And I was talking to him and I said, well, are you happy? He said, look, um, I'm, I'm happy because I'm a happy person by nature. But if you ask me whether I'm as happy as I was 20 years ago, uh, the answer is no. And I said, well, where were you 20 years ago? He said, 20 years ago, my wife and I were five years into our marriage and it was a struggle. Everything was a struggle. Uh, we really struggled to build our business. She worked with it and I worked with it. And we struggled in order to maintain the, the affection between us and the relationship between us. But we were happy. We, we felt fulfilled. And now, he says, I go to the office every day, but 
the looks of tolerance that I get from my staff suggest to me very strongly that they would be just fine <laughs> if I stayed home. He says, I'm not, I'm not needed there. And um, he says, our children are no longer home. And my wife has a busy social life. And uh, I, I don't think she's really happy, but I think she may be happier than I am. And uh, we ended up having a long conversation. I'm sure you can imagine pretty clearly uh, the direction that that conversation took and the advice I gave him in response to his request. And um, when I last spoke to him not so long ago in the last year, um, it was quite a different story. It was very interesting. It was very interesting indeed. Anyways, uh, being happy and not being a whiner is really a matter of refusing to surrender to nature. And uh, you know that I've often quoted from that marvelous old film, African Queen, with Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn, and uh, uh, World War I in Africa, and Germany had lots of land in uh, in East and West Africa. It used to be called German West Africa. The area now known as Namibia was Southwest Africa. It used to be German. On the east side of Africa, there were German possessions as well, as well as the British. British had Kenya, for instance. And um, there, there were many, many large tracts of a country that were owned by Germany. So naturally, England and Germany were at war in Europe, and so they also were at war in Africa. And uh, uh, Catherine Hepburn plays a Christian missionary. Um, the, uh, the, pl the hero, Humphrey Bogart, is a dissolute um, man who runs a riverboat called the African Queen, and uh, he has a strong tendency to alcohol. And she had this really urgent, she had to get down river. He was going to take her. And uh, she came to the boat, and there he was lying intoxicated on the boat and surrounded by bottles, some empty, some full. She flings them overboard, and uh, they have a fascinating conversation where he says to her, leave me alone. Just leave me alone. This is my nature. I am what I am. You remember a few weeks back on this show, I spoke about how dangerous in any of our lives it is to even utter, let alone even contemplate uh, the, 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 the words, you know what? I am what I am. I can't help it. This is who I am. Well, that's what uh, Humphrey Bogart said to Catherine Hepburn, and she drew herself up, and she looked down at him, and she said, uh, uh, it's your nature, is it? Well, nature, Mr. Nutley, is exactly what we were put into this world to rise above, and never was a truer word spoken in a, in a movie. Uh, she's exactly right. We do try and conquer nature. Nature is out to get us. Nature is out to hurt us. And there is no worship of nature in Judaic, in Judeo-Christian thinking. There isn't any worship of nature. We steward the environment. We are careful. We don't act destructively. But um, nature is there to serve us, and above all, it's there to be improved. And this is part of what lies at the heart of Bible thinking. 
which is that God makes us his partners in making the world. And so God made a world in which there are lots of bugs and viruses and uh, things that want to hurt you and kill you. Well, our job is to clean up the swamps so the mosquitoes go away and kill the rest with DDT and, um, and find ways to combat the other bugs and the other diseases that are out there. And sure enough, when you think of what life expectancy was like, even in the United States of America, it was even worse in Europe. But, uh, you know, as recently as the 1800s, right? Go back to the 19th century. Uh, for a, a woman to have given birth to, say, you know, six children and to have six children was more the exception than the rule. Many, many children died young, and this was just accepted. You know, that's, that's how it was. Life expectancy of adults. Anyway, I don't have to. You know all this stuff. Uh, we, we really, really worked hard to overcome nature. And the most destructive part of nature, which we have to work even harder to overcome, is our own nature. That's right. We have to develop the ability to make ourselves happy. Make ourselves happy. And uh, uh, Corey Ten Boom, who some of you will know of, some of you won't. I'm not going to take the time right now. I've spoken about her many times. But uh, a wonderful, a wonderful woman who, uh, whose father died um, by, at the hand of the Nazis in Holland. And she used to say that um, if you worry... Worry doesn't make tomorrow's problems go away, but it strips the joy out of today. She's absolutely right. Uh, worry? No. If there are things you can do to improve tomorrow, then do them. But to just sit and worry about tomorrow, that makes it very difficult uh, to fulfill the requirement of making ourselves happy. Now, uh, I'll, I'll come back to that, but I just have to tell you something else that uh, that happened to me. I walk into a hardware store the other day. It was it was a national hardware chain, not Home Depot, but I'm not going to mention the name of the store it was because they are not yet financial sponsors of this show, and so uh, free advertising not part of our agenda. So I, I walk into the. <laughs> I walk, you all know it is. I walk into the, the store and my heart suddenly starts going pitter patter and it speeds up and I feel myself suffused with a, a rising sensation that, that springs up in my heart of happiness and joy and a, a smile breaks out over my face. What caused this in a hardware store? I saw a big display of craftsman tools with the familiar red and black logos. Now, what some of you may not be aware of is that I, I love tools. I like working with tools. I like fixing things. I like making things. And I, I, I'll tell you the truth. Um, I, even, I love holding a good tool in my hands. It just 
you know what my key ring is? My key ring is a little miniature craftsman wrench, about four inches long. Actually, it's a real one. It's not. It's not. It's not a, a model or anything. It's, it's usable for small things. That's my. That's my key ring. Um, it's just something I. I do like tools now. For many years, uh, I used to buy craftsman tools. Where at Sears stores now. Uh, some of you may be too young to even remember what Sears stores are. <laughs> it's not that long ago, but Sears was a ubiquitous brand for more than 100 years in America. And there was no neighborhood, there was no community that didn't have a Sears store. And even remote rural neighborhoods that didn't have any stores had the Sears catalog. And you could order absolutely anything from the catalog. There was a whole section on tools. And then they started issuing a, speci a special uh, tool catalog. They did a special fashion catalog for men, a special fashion for women. You could even buy a whole house once upon a time at Sears, and it came to you in pieces in a box, and you could build it, and I've actually been in a home in Seattle owned by friends of ours uh, that was, was this, they didn't build it, somebody else did before them, but it was a Sears house, uh, so Sears was this incredible store, and uh, I have uh, spoken in the audio program that you can get on our website at rabbidaniellappin.com, I have an audio program called our uh, Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. And in that, I speak about uh, companies that built um, extraordinarily pretentious uh, he new headquarters and how one after the other, every company that did that went into decline. Now, this is not a, a fixed rule of economics. This is not a fixed biblical principle. This is not a timeless truth. But it is interesting that when companies start thinking about grandiose headquarters, it's a good sign that they may not be providing enough focus and enough energy and enough attention to their core business. Uh, I know some of you are saying, well, what about Apple's new amazing headquarters that looks like a huge spaceship in Cupertino, California? And uh, the answer is, uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. The, the jury is out, but I will be watching anxiously and with great interest. So um, Sears uh, had this brand of tools called Craftsman. And the reason I, along with many, many other people, obviously huge numbers of people, the reason we bought Craftsman tools was because they had a lifetime, no questions asked guarantee. And I will tell you the truth. I did not use it very often. You know, please don't think Craftsman tools used to break. Uh, I think in, in all, in, in you know, I don't know how many years I used them for, but in all that time, I may have done three exchanges. And you just walk the tool into the tool department of your local Sears, and nobody, there was like, nobody said, when did you buy it? How long have you had it? They just took it and replaced it, gave you another one, and gave you a big smile, and out you went. And uh, as I say, it didn't happen often, but somehow knowing you could do that meant that they had trust in their tools, and so and over the years, you acquired trust in them as well. I know I'm not alone. I know there are other people listening uh, who also have warm, nostalgic memories of Craftsman tools. So did I race over to the Craftsman display and immediately, and, and I always did that, by the way. I mean, if I was ever in a Sears store, 
I'd invariably go down to the basement where the craftsman tools were, and I'd always find some reason why I needed a tool. <laughs> and, um, of course, my family smiled tolerantly. And, and sometimes, even when my kids bought me a birthday present or something, they, they, they would just go and get a craftsman tool to just add to my workshop. And, um, and so, I mean, everything. Uh, I even bought a shop vac once, but I, I went out of my way. It was a craftsman one and never had a bit of trouble with it. Boy, it was powerful. It was effective. Used it all the time. And um, that was craftsman. So the question you are now perplexed and puzzled by is, so why didn't I go along and buy a few tools? And the answer is that, no, I did not. And neither should you. And I'll tell you why. It's a sad, sad story, but it certainly gives you a sense of the power of a reputation. And so, you know, as, as, you, as you go through life, you start off, you know, you may get your first job. I don't know, when you're a teenager, you should for sure. And it's a part-time job when you're not at school and then later on. And then, you, you know, you get another job and one job leads to a better job. And you, all along, you're building skills. You may be one of those people who just doesn't find their metier easily. And you move from job to job because you're just not finding something that just you can really throw yourself into. And I, I have um, programs and information uh, for you on that as well. But bottom line, there is something you are accumulating all along. And if you are not taught this between those critical years of 13 and 23, and you may, um, you may remember only a few months ago, uh, we did a show right here, a Rabbi Daniel Lappin show episode on a do-over. And I said, you know, who wouldn't take, a, take back your years from 10 to 23 and redo them because so much of your future happiness and success in life depends on how you handle the years 13 to 23 but uh, there you are you uh, you you work and nobody teaches you that the valuable thing that's going on during these early work experiences and then onwards for the rest of your life is building of reputation. Nobody tells you that. And um, I say very few people, but as parents, what an obligation we have to teach our children when they're at that age, in those years. Some children, you can start teaching them that at 13. Uh, others, you have to, they're not mature enough. You have to wait a little bit and start telling them later. But they got to, you got to get across this idea of how important reputation is. And, uh, you know, little by, and particularly today, by the way, you know, it used to be, well, uh, you know, if I moved to another city, I'd leave my reputation behind. Even then it wasn't true because people knew people and people had phones and uh, it was very quick and very easy to find out when you applied for a job or you were going to be included in an, a deal and a transaction. Uh, it was easy for people to, to find out, you know, what sort of reputation do you have and in the same way that reputation is uh, a huge growing asset for an individual man and woman needless to say in different ways but uh, reputation really important 
And in the same way, it's also really important for businesses. So much so that it even has a line on the financial statement, right? They call it goodwill. And it really has value. Well, an example of that was the Jeep. The Jeep name, um, especially among men who fought in World War II, (coughs) came back home and uh, they remembered this powerful little four-cylinder engine workhorse that carried them through the deserts of North Africa and up the spine of Italy and into the invasion beaches of Normandy and through France. Yeah, the Jeep, everyone remembered the Jeep. And so, not surprisingly, the Jeep became a well-loved brand. Do you remember the Willys Jeep going back a long time? And they even made a big one for large families. Clothes was like an early SUV. Some of you will remember that maybe. And um, there it was. Eventually, the brand ended up being owned by AMC, American Motors Corporation, and then owned by Renault, the French car company. And basically, they ran it into the ground. And um, it really wasn't worth very much. Along comes Lee Iacocca. Um, And you might wonder the name Lee Iacocca. What's so interesting, Lee Iacocca was the chairman of Chrysler. And in fact, his name, if you ever wondered how to spell Iacocca, then just spell out the initial letters of the words, I am chairman of Chrysler Corporation of America. And Lee Iacocca uh, realized that he could snap up the Jeep name, the Jeep brand, and turn it into a Chrysler product because he felt that that there was still enough lingering affection for the brand, for the name. And sure enough, in 1987, um, by which time the Jeep had kind of been somewhat invisible for a few years, uh, 1987, Lee Iacocca paid $1.5 billion, right? $1.5 billion. That's $1,500 million uh, in order to buy. What did he get? Well, he basically got the right to use the word Jeep and put the word, the name Jeep on cars that he built. That's what he got. Well, it's true. He did also get a small assembly plant in Ontario, Canada, um, which was valued uh, only a few hundred million dollars. So he still paid at least a billion, at least a thousand million dollars just for the name, just for the, the right to own the name Jeep. That, that's a lesson I've never forgotten on the power of reputation. We call it value of brand, but you cannot overestimate it. And your brand as an individual can acquire real value depending on how you run your life how you maintain your five F's, and uh, any business you build can develop real reputation. And, um, and so sure enough, uh, Chrysler did very, very well with Jeep. They, he was right. There were still enough Americans who assumed that the word Jeep meant a strong, durable vehicle. Now, of course, for I mean, for many years already, uh, Jeeps and Dodgers are built on the same 
um, platform. I was going to say chassis, but they don't use chassis much anymore. Uh, same platform. And some people swear by Dodge and some people swear by Jeep. And it's the same car underneath the paint. But uh, that's part of branding. And I, I don't like that part of it. Nonetheless, I tell you all of that um, in order to um, amplify and clarify what happened to craftsmen. Bottom line is that uh, in uh, over a period from about 2010, uh, the quality already started going down. Sears was going downhill and uh, nobody was protecting the brand in terms of its quality. By 2017, I think it was, yeah, that's right, um, the company that by that time was a conglomerate of Stanley Tools and Black & Decker, was now one company, Stanley Black & Decker, purchased the um, Craftsman brand for hundreds of millions of dollars. What did they get for it? Nothing, just the name. That's the power of a reputation. The value of the Craftsman brand, and it makes total sense, by the way, because it, it, it elicited that same little rapid heartbeat that I got when I saw the Craftsman uh, brand for sale in the hardware store. That also happens to millions of other men as well. So they made uh, out very well buying the Craftsman brand, but sadly and tragically, the quality is no longer there. You see, Craftsman tools used to be manufactured under rigorous quality assurance standards right in the United States of America, um, you know, in the heartland of American industrial creativity. And, uh, and so there was control. You know, when you held a Craftsman, I don't want to get rhapsodic. <laughs> I don't want to sound like uh, a teenager in love or anything, but Honestly, when you held a craftsman wrench in your hand, or even my little one on my key ring, it's it's just a good feeling. Um, it's and you know, without delving too deeply in or philosophically into it, there's something very profound because I know some of you are going to um, give me examples of where I'm wrong, but trust me, I have gone through this and I'm happy to discuss it with you. But I, the statement I'm making is that humans are the only creatures on the planet that make tools to achieve their ends. As a matter of fact, we even make tools to build tools. Uh, we are remarkable in that sense and unique in that sense. And so in a, in a certain way, a well-made and well-functioning tool is, I don't know, it's, it's sort of, you know, brings me closer to my creator in a sense. I'm saying, hey, you know what, I, I get it. You made me to be a mini creator also, and you gave me the ability to use tools like this. And, you know, when you fit a craftsman ratchet wrench over a, a stubborn bolt, you know, it just worked. It fit. You knew it wasn't going to slip and slide. It wasn't going to fall off and make you um, hurt your wrist or your knuckles. It was just great. And that is no longer the case. So this is a public service announcement. This is one of the benefits of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. A public service announcement every now and then to all you people who enjoy tools like I do, who even buy tools from time to time. And I have to tell you, do not buy craftsman tools any longer. 
They are mostly made in China, and it's not to say that you can't buy high quality in China. You can, but uh, you can also buy rubbish in China, and uh, craftsman tools today are not a patch on what they used to be. Uh, apart from anything else, I mean, just you, when you hold one in your hand, you feel that the finish isn't what it used to be. The finish used to be perfect, and now you can see the costing wasn't so good. It, look, it's don't waste your money on craftsman tools any longer. They just are not what they once were. Are they adequate? Well, that would depend on you. They certainly are not adequate for me, I can tell you that. Uh, I wouldn't do it. So what, uh, what, what to buy now? Buy industrial uh, quality tools. Uh, buy Snap-on as one example. Uh, Snap-on, great company, American company. Uh, tools built in America for the most part. And uh, by the way, I mean, don't think that I'm not aware that rubbish is being manufactured in America as well. I, I'm well aware of that. But uh, Snap-on Tools still holds their quality. And what's interesting about them, by the way, they were started before World War One, And between the, no, just after World War Two, they advertised for a military um, officer. They wanted to hire somebody with a background in military logistics to build up a national um, direct marketing model. And so to this day, uh, as a result of, and I don't remember the name of the military officer from World War II they hired, but he built up the system that resulted in, um, you know, many, many, many snap-on representatives who drove their, um, they they drove their sales display in the route in the form of a big truck, a, a van, a big van, and they had the philosophy that um, professionals, you know, mechanics, people like that, they're far too busy earning their living and building their businesses to go shopping for tools, so we'll take the tools to them. And sure enough, um, Snap-on, the Snap-on man, every little while would stop at uh, every mechanics and garage on his route, and um, and you know, people, you know, mechanics take their tools seriously. Um, I even for a while I got Snap-on to stop at my house um, for a while because I used to just love popping in and always you know pick up a tool here or there. It was hardly worth their while stopping for me but they did and they also gave me something i treasured for a long time um it was a beautiful chrome sign and i i don't know what happened to it i i wish it honestly if i if snap-on still has these i would really seek it out there was a lovely chrome sign that read please don't ask please do not ask to borrow my tools i make my living with them and i got one of those and i hung it on my bookcase now, you know, as you can imagine, I do have a large library of books, and I don't lend books because I learned years and years and years ago, I learned how seldom I got books back when I loaned them. And uh, and people would always ask me, and, you know, I said, look, you know what, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll buy you a copy, <laughs> but I just don't want mine out of my house. And, you know, I know I, know I sounded a little bit um, not nice about that but um it you know it, it, it the sign captured my feelings I I exactly to you the book you want to borrow from me is something interesting to me it's vital because at any point now again pre uh, pre internet i suppose but even today it's true uh, at any point in my preparation of a lecture of a speech of uh, a podcast 
I could need to look something up. I want to see the actual book in which and I, I know where to go in my library and I can find it. So I put that up. Please don't ask to borrow my tools. I make my living with them. And I put that on my library. So uh, people used to come and and they laughed and straight away, you know, sometimes people would ask if they could borrow a book of mine. I'd just walk them over to where the little chrome plaque was. And uh, and that was it. They used to give that sign out to mechanics <laughs> to because I dare say mechanics have the same problem. You know, friends come, hey, you got all these. So can I borrow this? No, no, not not if it's my my professional tool. No, you can't. Uh, it's um, it's 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 an important thing, and uh, there we have the sad story of craftsmen. Now, the the uh, public um, welfare message uh, is is not done yet. I have to tell you one more aspect of it. So I told you not to buy craftsman tools. I said you can buy Snap-on tools, and there are a number of other brands that are designed for the professional. But, I, you know, I don't care if I, if I only use my, one of my tools once a week, I still think of myself as a professional when I'm using a tool, and I want a good tool, and I'm sure you're like that as well. So here is my advice. It's a little bit sad, but if you want to buy good tools, keep a lookout, and sometimes it'll be in uh, local papers, sometimes it'll be on uh, online, but I'll tell you what you're looking to find. It's a bit sad, but what you're looking to find is the widow of a guy with a good set of tools and she wants to get rid of them now and um, she'll be happy to sell particularly if you show the same kind of enthusiasm for the tools that her late husband had uh, you will be able to buy high quality tools for a lot less than you could possibly buy them new and in many cases, they're not even available. You will be buying many craftsman tools from the olden days where a craftsman tool was really something. And so go along and uh, try and find. And, you know, you have to talk to a lot of people, which is good anyway, and uh, seek out. Because in every neighborhood around wherever you live, there are guys who are retiring and no longer building and fixing and doing things. And uh, at a certain point, those tools are going to be sold. Now, here is a caution here. Um you may not know this, but most guys use the 30% rule when they buy tools. And that is they tell their wives that it costs only 30% of what it really costs. Now, I wouldn't be shocked to hear that women have a similar 30% rule for I don't know what. I'm, I, I can't even begin to guess. But uh, I do know that uh, many, many men use the 30%. So they, they've come back from Sears with a bunch of craftsman tools and I was, oh, you got, uh, oh, you got a lot of tools. These look very interesting. Oh, they look very good. She's really saying, how much were they? And the truth is, they were actually a hundred and twenty dollars. And the uh, husband will always answer with his thirty percent rule, and he'll say, um, uh, actually, they were less than forty dollars, <laughs> because, you know, guys just are a little bit reticent about saying how much money they spend on good tools and so you know a little white lie no harm done and uh, they just feel better rather than telling the full amount of the tools anyway here's the problem you could end up uh, cheating the widow 
which you really don't want to do. What I mean by that is that she will assume that these tools were purchased for about a third of what they really were purchased. So in her mind, their value is is probably very low. And so you need to try and educate. You may have to actually tell her you want to pay a bit more than she's asking um, because, you know, and you can say, because I can see how well your late husband looked after his tools or how well he selected such great tools. You know, he must have been a wonderful guy, but I, you know, I can't pay you um, only uh, $250 for all these tools. Um, I, I don't think I can do that, but I, I can pay you $350 and she'll be a bit shocked and baffled to begin with, but then uh, you'll be able to explain so that you don't end up cheating the widow. But all of that is for those of you who are in perpetual tool-buying mode, uh, like I am, actually. So now you know uh, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show is chiefly for happy warriors. No, it is not for fools, fanatics, freeloaders, and freaks. Actually, I like five Fs, don't I? I like the five F's of family, friendships, finance, faith, and fitness. So the show's not for fools, fanatics, freeloaders, and freaks. That's four. Aha! Fiends! No, this show is not for fools, fanatics, freeloaders, freaks, and fiends. No, it is for happy warriors. People who make themselves happy people who overcome and struggle to overcome nature, particularly our own, that's what makes us happy warriors. And another thing that happy warriors do not do is attribute things to luck. We don't attribute things to luck. Why not? Well, because it creates a subconscious conviction in our hearts that we live in a random accidental world of just things just happening when we don't uh, we live in a world that is designed we live in a world that is guided we live in a world in which everything happens just the way it is meant to happen and um, and it's not a random thing so if you start attributing stuff to luck then the next thing is you start saying to yourself, why does this happen to me? Why am I so unlucky? Interestingly enough, I far more frequently hear people complaining about how unlucky they are than I hear people expressing their blessings at how very lucky they are. Somehow or another, you know why? Because I told you earlier, our natural default condition is towards unhappiness. Our natural default condition is to whining and complaining. And I'm going to tell you something now that you're going to remember, and when you see it occurring, you are going to burst out laughing. Just remember you heard it from your rabbi first, would you? Please, because when you burst out laughing, I want to be the recipient of the blessing in your heart for the one who made you laugh. Here's what I'm going to tell you. This is, uh, it's going to surprise you at first, and initially you probably are going to say, well, I don't see any connection. Just Listen, don't worry about whether it makes sense. Don't worry about whether you see the connection. Just give yourself a few weeks to watch it. And if you see no correlation in the next few weeks, then fine, drop it. You know, then it, it, it's wrong. But I think you're going to find great correlation. Here it is. Uh, 
complaining makes people prematurely old-looking. That's right. Isn't that weird? Being a negative, pessimistic, whining, grumbling, complaining sort of person makes your face age prematurely. It's true. Um, by the way, I, I'm not going to take the time for the full story. You can find it on our website if you search uh, for uh, Thought Tools and, and the, the story. But, um, you know, Abraham died at 175 years old. And ancient Jewish wisdom explains that 180 was the age that uh, was decreed by God for the first uh, three forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Abraham died five years early in order to be spared the sight of something. I'm not going to go into it now. Um, Isaac lived the full decreed 180 years. Jacob lives for 147 years and dies. And um, the reason is because he was a complainer. As you know, Scripture does not whitewash the moral qualities of its characters, and uh, there was no attempt to conceal that Jacob tends to be a complainer, you know. And so, sure enough, when Pharaoh asked him his age at the end of Genesis, when he came uh, to uh, move to Egypt on account of Joseph being very high-ranking there, and uh, Jacob comes to Egypt. Pharaoh says to him, um, how old are you? It's a very weird thing to say to somebody the very first time you meet them. And Pharaoh's excuse was that he had figured out roughly how old Jacob was, and he was shocked to see such an old-looking man. And the explanation is that uh, just being a grumbler, Jacob's weakness was that yeah, he was always, 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 things always bad. And it prematurely aged his face. And so Pharaoh was shocked to see somebody looking so much older than he had calculated him to be. So, uh, yes, you're going to burst out laughing because sometime in the next few weeks, you are going to see somebody who whines and grumbles and you're going to suddenly realize that they have an old looking face. Uh, or it may go the other way. You might see somebody who's just cheerful and upbeat and happy, and you're going to look and say, wait a second, they're, they're older than they look. And when that happens, you're going to say, ah, my rabbi, and you're going to burst out laughing, and you're going to utter a silent prayer for me, because uh, I made you laugh. And so it is, yes, you you will laugh at this. And, um, and you know, all of these things all tie in being happy and being optimistic, well, uh, these are things that are good for your health, right? There are numerous books I've got. Yes, and I do not lend them out. I have literally four, five, six books that I've got clustered together, uh, all on the subject of how uh, relationships aid in medical recovery. In other words, people who discharge from a hospital do much, much better if they've got networks of family and friends, not for the physical care, but for the you know, it's people who have no friends and no family, and even if they have a nurse looking after them, they don't do as well as folks who are strongly connected. So it seems there's this incredibly powerful uh, medical connection between physical well-being and human connection. Again, it's not; it shouldn't shock you, but uh, that means that your physical fitness is enhanced by your giving a state of happiness. Why? Because Happiness 
exuding happiness makes it much easier to have connections. If you are a miserable, whiny, complainy, grumbly person, just think what you do to your family members. Think what you do to the people you live with. How unpleasant it is for them to live with you. Awful. And the converse is that if you are a happy person, well, then people like being with you. So your friendships do better. Your family does better. Even your faith does better because when you know God expects us to worship him in happiness. Uh, Gen- uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 40-something, God says, you want to know why all these bad things have happened to you? Because you did not worship the Lord your God with joy. That's why we're expected to be happy. And needless to say with finances, yeah, of course, uh, we tend to do business with people we know, we like, and we trust. And people who are just miserable and upset and unhappy, uh uh-uh, doesn't work. Um, By the way, you might say to to me, well, what am I supposed to do? I don't don't feel happy. How do I I make myself happy? And uh, one of the explanations, one of the solutions to that is that start practicing gratitude. Very important. Think about this. If you're a grumbly, whiny, complaining sort of person, and you finally get it into your head that this is no good, you've got to just stop it. Stop doing it. Is that enough? Have you now done the opposite of complaining? No, right? Zero is not the opposite of negative 11. Plus 11 is the opposite of negative 11. But zero is just halfway on the way. And so if you're a whiny, grumbly complainer and you suddenly stop doing that, well, kudos to you. Well done. It's not easy to get rid of an awful habit like being a whiner and a grumbler and a complainer. Not at all easy. But uh, if you do, good for you. But you're only halfway to your journey. You've now got to do the opposite of grumbling and complaining. What's the opposite? And you're going to think and think and think, and finally, you're going to nail it on the head. The opposite of grumbling and whining and complaining is expressing gratitude, articulating appreciation, saying thank you. That's right. And in the same way that whining and grumbling and complaining is guaranteed to do exactly one thing, which is make you feel miserable, thanking people is guaranteed to do another thing, which is make you feel happy, right? It is a very interesting thing, but the portal to happiness is gratitude. And so I always recommend people in my programs, in training classes, uh, make sure that once a day, you can do this in a journal or you can do it on a three by five index card, make sure that once a day, you write down three things you're grateful for on that day. Make sure you thank people. You know, if you've got a spouse, your spouse won't get tired of hearing you say thank you. Thank you for taking care of us. Thank you for making such a wonderful dinner for us last night. Thank you for being who you are. Thank you for the effort you put into our home. Thank you for how hard you were. Whatever it is, your spouse will never tire of hearing you say thank you. And saying thank you to somebody will make you feel happy. You can also say thank you to God. You know, if you if you took on the really worthwhile custom and habit of getting up half an hour earlier uh, than you used to and buying yourself three and a half extra hours a week, fine, three hours. Maybe you're not going to do it on one day a week. And uh, 
Maybe you got to see the sunrise. Didn't you feel like thanking somebody for the sunrise? You can't thank your alarm clock, but you can thank God. And again, for people who are not religious, I, I get it. And all I can say is, it's you know, I'm I, I'm not notching um, my bedpost with conquests or anything. Uh, whether you are religious or not, I really do not have any vested interest at all. Uh, all I'm telling you is that you probably have more need for faith in your life than you realized. Uh, we've all been conditioned over the last 50 or 60 years already uh, to believe that faith is optional. Now, nobody says exercise is optional. But everyone says faith is optional. Some people have it. Some people don't have it. That's not exactly how it works. Oh, uh, you know, I, I'm not an exercising sort of guy. I just don't have the willpower to do exercise. Nobody says that's okay. Uh, yeah, you know what? I do overeat. Yeah, you're exactly right. I'm an overeater. Uh, you know, it's just just how I am. I'm I'm I am a person of no faith. It's just how I am. No, we don't accept that. Meaning in ourselves, not in other people. So. Uh, just be aware, at least open to the possibility that certain things in your life could conceivably start going better uh, if you um, leave a teensy-weensy little opening in your heart for God. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know, I'm just telling you, if not, fine, no problem, no skin off my nose. But um, there it is. Having somebody like God to thank for good things uh, is a huge help because articulating appreciation to God um, is even more helpful than articulating it to a person in terms of achieving um, a, a genuine level of happiness, some, something really quite lovely and, uh, and, and, and very, very valuable. And I, I know you'll find it that way as well. So I see this guy who, uh, who writes, oh, you know, luck is the, the big factor in life. Luck is everything. Uh, if it wasn't for luck, and he, then he starts listing off, I wouldn't have the job I have, and if it wasn't for luck, I wouldn't be married to the woman I'm married to, and he carries on like that, and um, and I think to myself, you know, this is really misleading people. This is a really, really bad idea, and and I want to explain why it makes sense to try and start expunging the word luck from your life. Uh, yeah, I was lucky. Oh, that was a lucky break. No, actually not. And uh, and you will find real life benefits when you consciously and deliberately cut out the use of luck. First of all, uh, I'll tell you just of a matter of interest. How many times do you think the word luck shows up in the Hebrew scriptures? The answer is zero. <laughs> right. Not one time. Isn't that something? Yeah, because it doesn't exist. It's not a reality. And so, of course, Scripture never says, man, you know what? That Abraham guy, he just lucked out. No, it actually doesn't say that. Um, the word in Hebrew that is when you ask an Israeli, uh, you know, what is the Hebrew word for luck? He's going to tell you it's the word mazal. And, um, and he's going to say that you can say to somebody mazal tov good luck. And I, I want to now correct you. Uh, that is not absolutely so. Uh, the word mazal actually doesn't mean luck in that sense. Um, and when people say mazal tov, 
good mazal. It's not good luck. What they really are saying is congratulations, right? You've done well. And so when people get married, when people have a birthday, when people have an anniversary, uh, when people, uh, somebody sells a business successfully, uh, mazal tov, mazal tov, congratulations. But you never use that in the way we might say to somebody, hey, good luck. Somebody going into an interview, somebody going to sit a tough examination, uh, somebody going to for a, for anything, and you say, hey, good luck, hey? No, mazal is never used in that context. Uh, so what do you say for somebody going in for a, an ordeal, an, an exam, a, a medical procedure, an interview? In Hebrew, you say, bahatz lacha. It should be with success. Now, isn't that more direct and to the point? Hatzlacha is a feminine noun in Hebrew for success. Why do you think the word success in Hebrew has to be a feminine gender word? Uh, Because it gives birth. Have you ever heard the expression success breeds success? Well, that is exactly the concept captured by the Hebrew noun success, Hatzlacha. So somebody, you know, you wouldn't say good luck for your exam, good luck for your medical procedure, your operation. It doesn't exist in Hebrew. You'd say, may it go successfully. It should be with success. And uh, you might say, congratulations, mazal tov. But luck, no, it simply doesn't exist. So uh, if that person were here with me now, he'd probably say to me, well, I disagree with you, Rabbi Lappin, because... Um, I was, it was just luck that I married my wife. You see, um, I, what happened was that I had a, uh, a neighbor and we became friendly and he had a girlfriend and one day he suggested we go on a double date because his girlfriend has a friend to bring along. And guess what? I married her and we've been married for 10, 20, 30, whatever you want to say, years so, and that was only because I had the luck to move in that into that apartment, and the luck to make friends with the guy next to me, and the luck that his girlfriend had a friend, and so it was all these lucky breaks, that is why I'm married to my wife, and here's what I would say to him, um, with all due respects, you are exhibiting as much understanding of how this works as an oyster would, it's just not how the thing really works, not how the world really works. Why? Uh, because, and you're not going to like this, but you are revealing that you have bought into the Hollywood notion of marriage. That there's, and again, I'm, I'm saying this with some degree of trepidation because I don't want to, I do want to shatter your illusions because illusions can damage your life. Living with illusions is a really, really bad idea. So I do want to shatter illusions, but I don't want to do it ruthlessly. I don't want to do it callously. I don't want to do it with cruelty. And uh, and I'm sure that for many of you, uh, this might come as a little bit of a disturbing fact. But look, do you really come to this show to be massaged with warm butter? Really? Is that what you know me for? Hey, I'm just feeling, you know, it's been a a bit of a difficult way. I just want somebody to give me a nice warm massage with hot butter. Ah, I know what I'll do. I'll go to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show because he can always be counted on to give me a warm butter massage. No, that's not true. You can count on me for the truth, but not necessarily for the short-term feel-good fix. Oh, it'll be a long-term fix for feeling good, no question. 
because understanding how the world really works um, is is a huge pleasure. It really is, even if initially it shakes you up a little bit. So here is the uh, the word. Um, contrary to Hollywood's message, there is not just one special girl waiting for her Prince Charming, and for her there's only one special guy, the right person who's going to sweep her off her feet. But uh, it's not like that, actually. It really isn't. Um, when I sometimes say to a man, as I did just uh, this past Sunday night, and so why are you not married? You know, I said to him, you know, what's your priority for this coming year? He told me what he wants to do professionally. And I said, look, um, that may or may not be true. And we can talk about those things. But for you not to make your number one priority getting married, I just don't understand why you would not do that. He said, well, yeah, you're right. It's also part of it. I said, so think about it for a moment. Why aren't you married yet? And you know what he said, what every guy says, I haven't met the right girl yet. And you know what? I answered him already. If you're a regular listener of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, you know that I answered him and I said, you must not be looking for the right girl. You must be trying to become the right man. When you are the right man, and I don't want to exaggerate, I'm not going to say the very next woman you meet can be your very happy and successful wife. I'm not going to say that. But I am going to say that you and I'm talking now to men, you could marry any one of a hundred different candidates, really. And, you know, some will be blonde and some will be brunette. Some will look a little this way. Some will look a little that way. Some will fit this um, preconceived idea of an non-negotiable quality your wife must have. Some won't have it. It doesn't actually make much difference. Because as long as you know what you're doing, and as long as you are able to communicate to her what your blueprint for marriage is, away you go. You've got nothing to worry about. And so when you look back and you say, you know, I've been happily and successfully married for 30 years, and we, we're as in love today as we were when we met, whatever you want to say, I pat you on the back and I say, that's wonderful. But don't think it's because you lucked out to find the right girl out of millions. It's because the two of you made a success of your marriage. She could have married other guys, and you could have married other girls. And as long as you were successful in effectively conveying the model blueprint of what you want in your marriage, and she agreed to that, away you go. There's really nothing to stop you. And so the success is not because you lucked into the right person, not at all. Instead, it's because you courted, not dated, you courted purposefully. You met her, you met him, the two of you discussed exactly what kind of life you are envisioning, what sort of home you would like to build with a partner, And when those sort of discussions take place early on, then you save yourself the heartache of getting emotionally and physically involved before you've nailed down the contractual details. And uh, it's not that I am spurning the romantic aspect. Of course, I understand that. And of course, that's important. 
but it's a question of whether you start with a romance and then somehow hope that we'll be able to get things right, or you start off establishing what's right, and then you allow the uh, free reign for the romantic development. You know, imagine how liberating this really is. If 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 it, the way it really worked was that when you met somebody, you're able to run a videotape of what your life together would be like. And then, you know, she can say, yeah, you know what, um, that's not what I'd bargain for, so enjoy the rest of your life, goodbye. Or you can look at it and say, ah, you know what, I didn't know that you're going to be like that after 10 years, so no, let's forget that, uh, not going to work. But you see, there is no way to run a videotape of how things are going to be. But what there is, is a way to establish what the fundamental principles are. You can establish what the terms of engagement are, and then things work on that basis. And so, as I said, it's not that you've got a successful marriage for the last two and a half decades because you happen to pick the right woman, woman or the right man. No, could have been almost anybody, not anybody, but it could have been a lot of people, provided the same parameters were established. And by the way, if, uh, if you're interested in where I know this from, it's not from any genius between my ears, I assure you. Uh, this, of course, is from ancient Jewish wisdom, and uh, this is where the very first Hebrew marriage is ever taking place, right? Abraham married Sarah before they accepted God. But now Isaac, who's the first born Hebrew, is now going to get married, and Abraham has sent Eliezer to find a wife. Now, Eliezer has the job of finding a suitable woman. And what does that mean, suitable? She's got to be feminine, right? Don't, don't waste your time with women who are fighting their femininity. It's just not worth it. Uh, you've, part of being a feminine woman is that there's a certain sweetness, a kindness, a caring. If, if that's missing, don't waste your time. And from her point of view, if he's not a man but a boy, don't waste your time. Um, if he says he loves you, but what he means it is the way I love turkey on Thanksgiving, uh, watch out, because the same thing that got happened to that poor turkey is what's going to happen to you, and it's not good. So, um, you know, there, there's, pl there's plenty of bases on which to rule it out from the beginning. But uh, Eliezer establishes that he's first of all going to look for a feminine girl. How, what's he looking for? Somebody who will see him thirsty and tired and will take pity on him and will say, hey, you know what? I'll be happy to get you something to drink and I'll take care of your animals for you, right? I mean, a girl who likes camels, how far wrong can you go, right? Uh, in my case, I insisted that it was a girl who liked llamas, but same principle. You can't go wrong. Uh, and then you know, it, once the sort of basic thing has been established, she's, you know, she's a suitable woman, she's a feminine woman, and she was pretty, uh, he now only had to run the video. All he had to do now was establish um, what, you know, what to let her know what marriage to this guy she hasn't even met, what it's going to be like. So it happens to be Genesis chapter 24, and if you are one of the fortunate few to have purchased a Rabbi Daniel Lappin recommended Bible, and uh, honest to goodness, Susan, do you know how many we got left? Very. I'm, I'm 
really like this is 20 make sales we have like maybe 20 to 30 left uh, susan says we have maybe 20 to 30 left and we're not um but uh, and then after that it's going to be several months because the pr- re- the reprinting is going to take some time anyways what I, no problem what i'm what i'm just saying is that on page 65 in the bible um eliezer does the following and i'm i'm going to tell you the uh, the hebrew because it doesn't matter what the english is for the moment um and the man took a gold thing of 172 value uh, and he gave her two things whose value was 10 and um and then he uh, said now tell me who your family is now some people assume that this means he gave her jewelry Listen, it would be highly inappropriate of a man to give jewelry to a woman he's just met. All right. And by the way, I recommend, you know, if you're if you're you've just met somebody, gentlemen, and you're um, you're you're courting her, you're trying to determine whether there is a common basis here for a shared vision of a home built together and a life built together. Um, don't give her jewelry. There's chocolates, there's flowers, but not jewelry. And sure enough, of course, Eliezer didn't give her jewelry. When did he give the jewelry? After the engagement, which is page 69 in the Bible, chapter 24, uh, Genesis 24, um, verse 53, page 69. And the servant brought out jewels of silver and jewels of gold and ornaments and and decorations. And he gave them to Rebekah. And he gave them also to the family, precious. That's when he did it, because they'd already, there was something serious that had already been established. But what was it that he gave her there? Well, uh, there's no way you could have known unless you are lucky enough to have a rabbi, and I humbly submit my candidacy, uh, then you'd know that there are 172 Hebrew words in the Ten Commandments. And so he gives her, what does this mean? That he meets her, and after the story of the camels, he uh, he says, okay, and he now gives her something of gold, meaning it's really valuable, uh, that weighs 172, meaning it's the Ten Commandments. And to clarify, it's two things of whose weight is 10, meaning two tablets with Ten Commandments written on them. Okay, that's the... Remember I said you can't share a videotape of what your shared life is going to be like. But what you can do is lay out the fundamental principles of engagement. What, how are we going to operate? And that is almost as good. You can't know the future exactly. But you can know the basis on which the marriage will operate. How will disagreements be resolved? That's a biggie. And sure enough, in any commercial contract, usually what's the last clause? You know, you, even when you buy a house, I mean, you know, it may go page after page after page. You finally get to the end, and it says very clearly, any disputes here will be resolved in the courts of the state of Idaho, or whichever it is, or the courts of the United Kingdom, or whatever. I don't know exactly how it says that in the United Kingdom. But that's all. We establish what the principles are. Here's the nature of the con. Well, that's what the Ten Commandments is. And essentially, what he is saying to her is exactly what uh, Susan and I said to one another, and what you and your wife, if you and or husband, if you've been married for a while, um, it's very clear. Hey, listen, 
um i can't tell you what's going to happen you know in sickness and in health what what god delivers one thing i can tell you is none of it is luck whatever happens is what's meant to happen how are we going to handle our relationship according to the 10 commandments and that in this very first example first hebrew marriage isaac and rebecca we have this laid out very clearly popularly misunderstood that he after the camel story he gave her jewelry not correct he didn't give her jewelry but he did sit down with her and say this conversation can't go any further until i find out are you willing to marry a man whom you not even met but who is um, going to relate to you and to the world with you by his side according to this system of rules so let's sit down i'm going to go through these rules with you i'm going to give you the implications and you will then have the best possible picture you can have of what your life is going to be like we can't look at the details but um, we do know in general terms we know that it's going to be based on honesty and integrity we know that you are you both going to agree to have children you are going to raise those children in a certain way Um, god is a part of the deal all of these things are laid out and so at that point maybe it's now a little bit more palatable for you when i say that yes ma'am you probably could have married any one of a hundred different guys and you know they would have been you know you might find you you would have been living in australia and this way you're living in um, in uh, singapore um, you know whatever it doesn't these are all details but in terms of the essential integrity of the marriage that really could have been almost anybody provided that the marriage was set up from the very beginning when you first met okay hey listen i just want you to know uh we are i i'm dating or courting purposefully this is marriage centric i this is not recreational for me it's not that i don't have anybody to go to the movies with i don't want to go to the movies at all with you because you can't talk in a movie i want to be with you so that we can talk and discuss amply and adequately to find out if we can build a shared vision of the kind of life we want to build the kind of family we want to build the kind of home we want to build if we can establish that we're good to go and uh everything else is details the idea that she's got to look a certain way or the idea that the guy's got to be a certain kind of detail how how he dresses no all of that is simply not the case so that is why I strongly reject, suggest that you reject the notion of luck completely from your lexicon. And, um, and nobody should say, you know, I, uh, my wife and I, thank God we've had this wonderful marriage. It was so lucky that we met. No, that wasn't the point. It really wasn't. And, and so it is as well. You know, this guy I was telling you about said to me, he said, oh, um, you know, it's all luck that I have the job I have. I've been in this job for X number of years, and it's it's all no, it isn't. How you conduct yourself in business is the key thing. You could have started off in twenty-seven different occupations, and you pretty much would have been more or less where you are now. Yeah, there are occasional exceptions. You know, if it is the if it is the uh, cutting edge of the silicon epoch and you happen to uh, bail out of Harvard before you got your degree, and you happen to start up a software company with your best friend, okay, admittedly, 
uh, things wouldn't have gone exactly the same had Bill Gates decided to go off and be a uh, grocery salesman. Okay, things are things, but for most of us, for most of us, that is the reality. Where you are career-wise, where you are professionally, where you are financially, is really nothing to do with luck, but it has very much to do with decisions you've made, actions you've taken, commitments you've kept all along the way. And I've I've told you in the past that the uh, that languages tend to have many words for things that are important to that language, right? And so um, the example that uh, everybody gives is that certain languages uh, that, that are spoken by people in very cold climates are languages that are heavy on synonyms for snow. Uh, for me, it's just, you know, white stuff you've got to shovel away from the drive. But uh, for, for people for, who live in the snow, every subtle nuance of snow is very important. So they have many words. The Inuits are said to have about 22 words for snow. But uh, so it is. Um, Hebrew is interesting in that it has many words for friendship. It has many words for counting because numbers really matter. And it has many words for moral flaw, for a sin, many different words. Each one is subtly different from the other because if you think about it, Scripture is really the world's ultimate self-development program. If you are looking for the ultimate in the human development field, the Bible is the way to go. And what's more, it's got a nice financial payoff as well, because when you do everything the right way, well, guess what? That's how it works. And so important, I think, to get clear that uh, if you're trying to engage in self-development, then you need to find your flaws, right? It's not pleasant, but it's very satisfying work. You've got to find the areas in which you need to improve, the areas in which you are not fulfilling your potential, right? It's as, as we always say that in the world to come, God's never going to say to you, hey, why weren't you like Moses, right? He's not going to say that. He's going to say, why weren't you like you? Why didn't you achieve the destiny I planned for you? And you would have to answer and say, because I never spent any time examining myself, introspection, finding out the areas in which I have to improve and in which I have to develop. I just never spent the time doing that. But uh, the Bible helps you do it. It's got many words, as I say, for sin. One of them is very interesting. One of them specifically applies to areas in which you let yourself down. What is letting yourself down? Well, in the same way that we take commitments that we make to other people very seriously, you're supposed to take very seriously the commitments you make to yourself. So if I say to somebody else, I'll be at the corner at 3.30, then you really must be at the corner at 3.30 because you said you would. And that person will, uh, his impression of you will diminish. Your reputation will decline if you don't keep that commitment. And so we understand how important it is and how tragically destructive it is when we don't keep our commitments to people. But we don't realize that equally important are the commitments we make to ourselves. 
Let me give you an example. Let's say you are in, uh, you're a sales professional. That's your field. And in order to develop your business, you decide that you must call up five people a week and let them know what you do and ask whether you can be of assistance to them. If not now, then sometime future. And you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, because your rabbi told you, that if you put that effort into your business and you make a commitment and you keep it, and week after week, month after month, for a year, you call five people a week, then at the end of the year, you have reached nearly 300 new people, of which some are going to start bearing fruit. And so what happens comes the first week and you contact five people. Comes the second week and, uh, you know, you don't do it Monday, you don't do it Tuesday. By the time Wednesday you say, you know what, I can't even manage to do it all now. So you end up calling three people. And you say, okay, you know, no problem. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do it or I'll do five next week. Maybe I'll do eight next week. You see, you can't do that because the system of self-improvement means that you have to take a failure to keep your commitment to yourself much more seriously than that. You made that commitment. You failed. You can't just walk away from it and smile and say, oh, well, better luck next time. You wouldn't do that with a stranger. You wouldn't do that with a friend. You wouldn't do it with a business associate, would you? You'd never do that. It's always, you know, I'm sorry. I I did not deliver what I said I would. I'm really sorry. Here's how I plan to make it up to you. I mean, that's what people do successful people at any rate and uh, so in exactly the same way what are you supposed to do if you don't keep a commitment to yourself well that's a sin and every sinner has to have an atonement for it okay fine what's an atonement well what you have to do is something that you don't particularly like doing and you've got to make yourself do it as a punishment what might that be i don't know Uh, you have to figure this out for yourself but it might be um, uh, going on a three-mile run. Yeah, I, I failed my commitment. I said I was going to do this, this, and this by December the 31st. It's now December the 31st. New Year's Eve, it hasn't happened. Very next day, I'm doing a three-mile run like I said I would do if I failed in my commitment. That's what you've got to tell yourself. Or maybe, uh, maybe you're going to pick a poem. All right, and there's so many wonderful poems to pick. You're going to pick a, a 15 minimum line poem that you're going to learn by heart if uh, you fail to keep your commitment. So you've got your poem already marked out and you got it identified. Maybe you Xeroxed it, you put it up on the bathroom mirror, and there it is. If I don't keep my commitment, I'm going to have to. Now, it's not easy memorizing poetry, especially if you haven't done it for many years then you really got to get your memory back into shape. Your memory muscle has to work, and it's, it's valuable, it's good, but it's sufficiently painful that it'll help you keep your commitment better the next time. It helps you build that uh, spiritual resilience and that willpower to make sure you do keep your commitments to yourself every bit as strenuously as you keep commitments that you make to other people. So that is... Uh, loosely some of the things that I wanted to chat about with you today. There, of course, as always, is so much more, but um, time is always at a premium. Uh, the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and by the way, a journal, we, we publish a really nice journal there, Chart Your Course, it's called, 
uh, for doing exactly the kind of self-improvement that I've been talking about. And uh, it's just, it's inspiring. And, and you know that um, it's, it's, you're, a, you're a happy warrior. And that involves developing, conquering your own reluctances, uh, overcoming your own flaws and weaknesses. And that's really what this journal is all about. And I've explained to you before the powerful jolt of energy you get from writing something down, not with a keyboard on a computer screen, but with pen on paper. And that's why I recommend the uh, Chart Your Course journal as, uh, as a tool to, to help you start to take seriously some of the things we've been talking about in today's show. So take a look at that at rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, it's called Chart Your Course. Also at rabbidaniellappin.com, you can look at, um, at previous um, articles and columns we've written. Uh, you can also be in touch with us. You can email us. That's always fun. And you can tell me where you are uh, listening from. The most recent person to tell me that uh, is listening from the Ukraine. And uh, I, I, I know she's a lady. I cannot read her name because she signed it in the Cyrillic alphabet. And so I, I'm sorry, I feel like a total ignoramus. So I don't know what your name is, but I did get your note telling me that you are listening, you listen regularly, and you've been listening since the summertime, and that you are listening from Ukraine. And, uh, and there was somebody else as well who told me where they were listening from. I'm, I'm sorry, I just, I just don't remember it right now. At any rate, uh, that is about as far as we can go. You should also be aware that there is a website for, for Happy Warriors. It's called wehappywarriors.com, W-E, wehappywarriors.com. And uh, that is a place specially for happy warriors or aspiring happy warriors to hang out with Mrs. Lappin and myself. We all draw encouragement from one another. That's part of what being a happy warrior means. And um, that's the place we do it at, wehappywarriors.com. Okay, folks, uh, that is as far as we can go. Thank you very much for being part of the show. And as always, I really do appreciate those of you who tell other people about the show. And you've been doing that very, very effectively. Um, I saw that uh, in a number of countries around the world on the uh, podcast ratings, <laughs> it's really quite shocking how high we rated. And I, I certainly do appreciate it. So thanks for telling people about it. And, uh, and the people you tell about it probably thank you as well, because if they're your friends and you're somewhat like-minded, you're not going to be surprised that uh, they like pretty much what you like. Not to say that you like everything I say or you agree with me on everything or every single show is a winner. It isn't. We're all unique. We're all individuals. And uh, even I will say things sometimes that turn out not to be correct and I have to correct it the next week. Or I say things in an you know, in a unsympathetic way, which I don't mean to. But um, that's what sometimes happens. But we all try and do our very best. Thanks for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Much appreciated. I want to wish you a week of good times with your faith, with your family, with your friendships, with your finances, and with your fitness, your physical fitness. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.